Well, open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 9, taking a second look at Saul's dramatic conversion. We'll begin today by reading the text. It's Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. And it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, last time we began learning that genuine Christian conversion, which this illustrates, is something that is initiated by God, not by us. And it results in a complete change of direction in somebody's life, a life that is now lived in service to the Lord Jesus Christ and unto the glory of God, not to the honor of ourselves. We noted that in Saul's conversion, there were three stages of conversion that are true of every genuine conversion. If you have been converted, you went through these three stages. If you're not, these are the three that you would need to go through. The first one we covered last time, the first stage was the original life, the life before faith in Christ, the life before conversion. And that's basically illustrated in verses 1 and 2. We saw there that Saul, in his unsaved condition, was a violent aggressor against the people called the way. That's what the name for Christians were at that time. They were the disciples of the Lord. His hostility was expressed in three ways. First, it was openly expressed. Some people have hostility towards God and Christ and Christians, but they don't express it openly. Well, he did. He expressed it publicly. Second, his hostility was expressed in official persecution against the church. He obtained the letters of extradition that he wanted from the high priest in Jerusalem to go off to another city and to drag these Christians back to prison and possibly to death. And third, not even being satisfied with that, His hostility towards the Christians was ardent. It resulted in him literally hunting down Christians in foreign cities, chasing them down, binding them, and bringing them back to Jerusalem. In every way, Saul had proved himself to be against the Lord, against the disciples of, of the Lord. In Saul's own mind, however, and this is still review from last time, he believed he was doing the right thing, didn't he? He believed he was preserving the true religion of Judaism. He saw the followers of this Jesus of Nazareth as heretics, as people that were leading Israel astray and reducing the law of Moses and pulling away 
uh, attention from the temple of God. This man, born and raised in Tarsus, yet strictly trained under a great rabbi named Gamaliel in Jerusalem, he was a thoroughly religious man, very well trained, and yet completely unconverted as far as God was concerned. And that's an important lesson in and of itself, that you can be a very religious man, a zealously religious man, a leader, and be an unconverted person. To understand conversion, we must understand that everyone starts with an original position that is not joined with God. It's alienated from God. People are not basically good, and they're not safe with God, despite what the world says. The Bible describes every man, woman, and child as lost, as not knowing their way to the true God and to heaven. Some are alienated because they're following false religion. That's what Saul was doing. Others are alienated just because they they may know what the truth is. They may even agree that Jesus is the Son of God, but they're stubbornly following their own will for their own life. They're after money. They're after success. They're after career. They're after pleasure. They're after whatever they're after. Like so many Americans today, their wills are stubborn against the rule of Jesus Christ in their heart. But everyone needs conversion out of their original life. For it is a sinful life. It doesn't matter how moral someone believes that they are. They're not moral enough. Everybody has sin. And they're unacceptable to God. You need a conversion to Jesus Christ if you haven't given your life to Him. Today we're looking at the second and the third stages of conversion. That is, God calling a person to salvation And then that person responding to the call by turning to God in repentance and faith. Let's look at the second stage, and that is God's calling of Saul in his sinful state. That's in verses 3 through 7. Focus on them, verses 3 through 7. Before we read that section, there is no conversion without God first calling someone to salvation. Salvation does not begin with a human being. It begins with God doing something. The calling of God, the initiative of God saving the sinner always, in every case, comes first. That was true of Saul as we see it here. We mentioned last time that Saul's conversion was so important it was recorded in the book of Acts not once, not twice, but thrice. It was that important. And that, of course, necessitates that we draw additional and complementary information from Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, as well as here in Acts 9. Also, I want you to please keep in mind that these three versions of Saul's conversion are each summaries of what happened at that time, and that's why there are differences in details. Plus, when Jesus spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus, he spoke in the Hebrew dialect that probably means the language of Aramaic. When the Lord Jesus was on earth, he spoke three languages. He spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He may have known Latin as well. So when we have this in Acts, which was originally written in Greek, some of the wording would change slightly based on the translation. Let's zero in on the situation of the calling that Paul had. Where was he? Well, look at verse 3. It says, as he was traveling, we know why he was traveling, he was on his way to persecute Christians. This wasn't a vacation, right? He was on a mission. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Now, just stop right there. 
With official documents in his hand, Saul and some undisclosed number of officers were traveling that road from Jerusalem to Damascus. As we mentioned last time, that was a long trip to take back then, 160 miles. What was Saul's frame of mind during this time? Well, a possible hint we get is from Jesus' words spoken to Saul at this time, not recorded here in Acts 9, but recorded in Acts 26, verse 14, where Jesus said to Saul, it is hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goads. That's what he said. Now, goads were used with oxen. The ox driver would have a long pole, and on the end of the pole was a piece of sharpened iron. And by this, the ox driver could prompt the animal to get the animal going or to get the animal to change directions. The animal kicking against the goads would be very unwise and would be hurtful. Many have taken this to mean that Paul's conscience was not at rest with his own violence against the Christians. They say that perhaps some of the words of his teacher, Gamaliel, had tormented Saul's conscience, that it was always wiser to be tolerant of people who had a different approach to God and let God deal with them. If they're not really of God, then what their their movement will end up fizzling out over time. And if they are of God, you will find yourself fighting against God. That's what Gamaliel had taught Saul. Or they say it's possible that when Stephen gave that godly speech that recounted all of Israel's history and then indicted the the Jewish Sanhedrin of their sin, that his face was shining like that of an angel, that maybe that got to Saul some. I'm not certain that the words actually imply that, though. Everything else about Saul reveals that he seems to be one-minded in his dogged determinism to stamp out Christianity, to persecute the way. Kicking against the goads was actually a common expression in the Roman and Greek culture, and it meant to resist destiny, to resist destiny. So I think it's more likely to mean that Saul was fighting a losing battle, and he didn't know he was fighting a losing battle. What he was trying to do, he would not win out over God. As hard as he tried to stamp out the way, there was no way he was going to be successful. You can't fight the king of kings sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and win. That's his point. When Paul describes his own mentality at this time in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, he writes, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He says, I was following what I thought was right, but I was unaware. I was ignorant of this. And so I think that's what he was thinking. He was just determined to do what he thought was right. And as Saul drew very close to Damascus, maybe with the gates of the city already in their sights, the Lord Jesus decided to defend his church and protect his church and intervene on behalf of his church right at this point. Notice next, in the middle of verse 3, it says, And suddenly, I like how God works. Sometimes we say, where is God? Why isn't God working? God's not doing anything in my life. And then all of a sudden it's, and suddenly God does something. You know, there's no God. He's not helping me. I've been there. He's not answering my prayers. And suddenly God does something. And it's out of nowhere. It's where you wouldn't think he would do it. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Verse 4. And he fell to the earth, literally, to the ground. 
and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, as we noted last time, this conversion is about as dramatic as there ever has been. You don't need to have this kind of a dramatic conversion. Don't compare your conversion to Saul's. That's not the point, okay? This light from heaven that flashed is clearly indicative of a supernatural heavenly light radiating the very divine being of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 22 verse 6 and Acts 26 13, it adds that this light happened around noonday, right in the middle of the day. Now, you can imagine already how bright a noonday sun would be in the Middle East near the desert. I mean, in modern times, we'd say people would have their best shades on at this time, right? But this light blazed more brightly than the hot desert sun. It was literally a pure, white, blinding light. And the fact that it happened suddenly with no warning at all indicates this wasn't some fluctuation in the sun. This wasn't some tricky reflection off of the, off of the desert sands. No. The only right way to read this is as a supernatural light intruding on the natural order and staggering all of the men that were traveling. The verb flash, by the, by the way, means to flash all around. It wasn't just one quick little flashlight. It flashed all around and surrounded them with a brilliant light. Picture the whole traveling caravan now lit up intensely brightly for a period of time. In fact, it was so bright and it sustained for so long, it knocked Saul to the ground. Uh, People nowadays use the word awesome too flippantly, in my humble opinion, because there's only a few things in life that are really awesome, and it's not blueberry pancakes. (laughs) I like blueberry pancakes, But, but this, this was awesome. That's why we save words for like that. There's nothing like this. This was awesome. It was awe-inspiring. Paul was awestruck by the dazzling light. Now, Saul was a student of the law of God. He knew what we call the Old Testament. And he would know that when you have a light like that, that light has its origin from heaven. This was not the first time that heaven's light had ever shone down upon earth. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 17, when the shining angel Gabriel came near the prophet Daniel, Daniel, it said, fell on his face in abject fear. Later, John the Apostle in Revelation 1.17, it says, when he beheld the Christ in heavenly glory, his response was to fall down as a dead man in front of him. That light was so bright. It was so intimidating. You know, that song says, I can only imagine what it'll be like when I see Jesus. Will I dance or will I do this? Well, I think we have our answer right here. You will fall down in fear before him. It will be all inspiring That's the kind of effect the heavenly holy light has on mere men. And so now Saul finds himself down on the dirt where a man made from the earth is supposed to be before his maker, Right? lowly with no protection before God, no recourse to turn to, no way to talk himself out of anything. He's not safe before this God. The sudden and glorious appearance speaks of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus the eternal God? You know it right from here. He shines with the very divine glory of God. 
In fact, Jesus displayed this divine glory once before to his disciples in Matthew 17, 5 on the mount called what? The Mount of Transformation. Why is it called that? Because he transformed in front of them. They saw this 30-year-old Jewish man and all of a sudden the blazing light of God came out of him and they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. Who is this? This is, this is God come down in a body and walk among us. That's who he is. And that shocked Peter, James, and John at that time. Well, it shocked Saul here. That same divine glory is going to be revealed in the end times. You and I are going to get to see that glory one day. It says when Jesus returns with his mighty angels in flaming fire, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 26, and many other places. But we must understand that Saul not only saw the light, Saul saw the person of Jesus Christ himself. Saul saw, that's hard to say, Saul saw the resurrected Christ because the light was exuding from his being. We know this because in chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, the disciple called Ananias said to Saul, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. He got to see the righteous one. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And to hear an utterance from his mouth. In fact, in chapter 26, verse 16, it confirms this, where Jesus said to Saul, get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. You are now a witness of my resurrection. I appear to you for this purpose. And of course, Paul's own testimony when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8, last of all, of all of the apostles, last of all, Jesus appeared to me, Saul wrote. Saul was to bear witness to the resurrected Jesus because he saw Jesus alive from the dead with his own eyes. How startled for Saul to realize Jesus of Nazareth was not dead as he supposed. He was risen. And more than that, he was highly exalted. As Saul was overwhelmed by the light from heaven, gazing at the figure in the midst of the light, right there is when the call of God came to Saul. This second stage of conversion, the call of God came to him right there. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, 14, it reveals the voice was in the Hebrew dialect. Notice Saul's name was repeated. Why? Because that expresses importance. That expresses earnestness. I don't know if you know this, but uh, in Genesis 22, 11, when Abraham was about to offer his son Isaac on the altar, remember with a knife in hand, the call came to him from the angel and it said what? Abraham, Abraham, twice. When Moses was standing at the burning bush, twice it came, right? Moses, Moses. That's how God arrests the tension of his people, right? The double address helped to arrest Paul's attention and know that it was he in particular who was being talked to. It was he in particular who was being called from on high. The question that Jesus asked Saul really was more of an indictment to him, wasn't it? This wasn't a question like Jesus was trying to figure out, gee, why are you persecuting me? 
This question was meant to expose the irrational nature of what Saul was so ardently pursuing. Why are you persecuting me? Well, ask yourself that question. Why do people persecute the church of Jesus today? Why do they do that? There's really no good reason to persecute loving and giving and hardworking and truth-telling and gracious people. Why would you persecute people like that? Christians are loyal to God. They're loyal to Christ. They, they express the highest ethic anywhere in the entire world. They are model citizens. Why would you persecute them? The answer to that question is in John chapter 15 and verse 25 where Jesus said, they hated me without a cause, without a cause. They have no reason to hate me. And, of course, they said if they hate me, they'll hate who? They'll hate you also, right? There's no good reason to hate Jesus Christ, and there's no good reason to hate the people who follow Jesus Christ, but it happens all the time. Please notice also that Jesus did not ask, why are you persecuting my church? He did not ask, why are you persecuting my people? Instead, he tied the church organically to himself and said what? Why are you persecuting me? Wait a minute. Jesus is up in the heavens. He's at the right hand of God the Father. How could he possibly be persecuted? Oh, beloved, there is such richness to this truth here. Do you see how the Lord above views us down here below? Not just his people, but his own body? How he treasures us? How he loves us? This is the truth of Ephesians 5.29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That's what Christ does with his own body. That's what he does with you. This statement, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This statement is the source of a beautiful doctrine that is well developed in Paul's epistles. The doctrine that the church is the, what? Body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Paul wrote, now you, he was writing to the Corinthian church, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Therefore, to attack the true church is to attack the very body of Jesus. That is how Jesus takes persecution. He takes it personally. Saul, at this point, thoroughly humiliated, immediately asks for his identification. Look at verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That term Lord that Saul uses is interesting. It does not mean that Saul knew that he was talking to God. It's clear he's not sure who the person is. That's why he asks. However, with such a heavenly light, Saul knew his theology well enough to do this was a heavenly visitor of some great status. And so Lord was a title of high respect. F.F. Bruce comments on this, Saul probably discerned a divine quality about the voice as it spoke to him, hence, who are you, my Lord? And next, Jesus identifies himself, I am Jesus. Can you just imagine what Saul thought of at that moment in time? I, he's going to kill everyone that's following Jesus, and this light appears to him, and he says, I am Jesus. 
Can you just imagine what was going on in his brain? This would have rocked his world. I mean, Jesus is not really gentle here. In Acts 22.8, it reveals that Jesus actually said, I am Jesus the Nazarene. This, this place of Nazareth, nothing good ever comes of Nazareth. Jesus still owns that title even in heavenly glory. I am Jesus the Nazarene. No mistaking which Jesus. Remember, Jesus was a, a, a name that was used for lots of people in that time. He, he wanted to make sure he knew which Jesus it was. Now, we've got to get silly a moment here. Because there's some skept, skeptical writers and commentators who always downplay anything supernatural in the Bible. And they try to explain it away. And they foolishly tried to call this vision of Christ that Saul had nothing more than an epileptic seizure. I don't know how anyone can read Acts chapter 9. I used to teach fourth grade and fourth grade reading comprehension. I don't know how these great scholars got past fourth grade and can, can read Acts 9 and think this was an epileptic seizure. Really? How does that explain any of the facts that happen here? Often unbridled skepticism is so close-minded to evidence, isn't it? F.F. Bruce dismisses such a theory by writing this. Any attempt to explain Saul's Damascus Road experience in medical terms must reckon with its revolutionary and long-term effects, end quote. In other words, Saul was changed for life after an epileptic seizure? Even those traveling with Saul saw the light because of his epileptic seizure? How idiotic. This was no mere personal and mystical event going on in his head. You know how the movies are. You know, they make it seem like the guy's crazy. You know, something's going on in his mind. This was an external objective event as well as a subjective event. Christ objectively appeared to him. There was a light. There was a sound. There was an interruption of a travel. Notice that Jesus provides the reason for stopping Saul in his tracks. He says, whom you are persecuting. Saul, I am appearing to you in my glory from heaven because you're persecuting me. That verb persecute, dioko, is the same term that was used by Stephen in his speech back in chapter 7 and verse 52 when Stephen indicted the entire Jewish council with the stinging words, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And then they killed him for saying that. It is a serious charge to persecute the king of heaven. That's what Saul is being charged with here. Saul was literally challenging the authority of heaven. Gamaliel had warned him about this, right? Remember the advice he gave back at chapter 5, verse 39? If the Christian movement is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. That was Saul now. Saul was fighting against God. At this point, we can only imagine Saul was crushed to death in his soul. This would have thrown his entire world into a spin. This was a total repudiation of everything he believed and had pursued. Never was a man more wrong than Saul of Tarsus. By persecuting Christians, Saul was persecuting the Lord of heaven he was claiming to serve. What a shattering realization. That is what every unbeliever 
Everyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ, that is what they must realize also, that you are living a life today opposed to the will of God. Every breath you take, everything you do on every single day is opposed to God. You're not serving God. You're serving yourself. You're serving some other deity. You're serving some false understanding of Christianity. You're not serving Jesus Christ in the Bible. You may think of yourself as a good person. You may think you're doing good charitable work. Nothing that you're doing is acceptable to God. You have to come to that realization. You have to have shock and awe about yourself. You're not good. You're not pleasing to God. There's nothing in your life that is recoverable. You have to come to the place where you realize you're opposing God. And so it was Jesus who called Saul. Notice next the calling itself, verse 6. Get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Must, must do. Notice that. That's the Greek term dead. You know what that means? It just means it is necessary. Here it, it has the implication that I'm, I am not only calling you to salvation and to follow me, I am calling you to serve me. I'm calling you to be my slave. I am calling you to walk and do the things that I am commanding you to do. There is a divine must attached to your life from here on out. Actually, the fuller version of what Jesus said is in Acts 26, verses 16 through 18. And here's what Jesus said, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Jesus said a lot to him at that time. Jesus was commanding Saul's complete conversion, a spiritual about face to serve him. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, writes, Saul the persecutor, with a letter from the high priest, now becomes Saul the witness with a commission from Jesus Christ. We also learn from chapter 22 and verse 10 that Saul asked Jesus at this point in time, what shall I do? Do you know what that means? That means as as instantly as Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul in his resurrection glory, in a split second, Saul was born again, Saul was alive, and immediately knew he was to offer himself to this divine being in service. He said, Lord, what must I do? He was already surrendered to him. He understood when the gospel call came to him and involved giving his life in service to Christ. He instantly died to his own will and lived to the divine will. Oh, please notice this very important doctrinal truth. God always takes the initiative in conversion and salvation. Men in their sinful state never have the capacity to search for God or be able to understand how beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. They can't do it. In Romans 3, 11, it says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. People are out there saying, well, I'm seeking for God. No, they are not. When Adam sinned in the garden 
and he first realized he was a sinful creature, the first thing that he did was to run and what? Hide. It was God who came looking for and calling for Adam. Where are you, Adam? Salvation called by God is always initiated by God. God is the one who comes giving the call. Come unto me and receive life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's being offered to you for salvation. Come now. That's God's initiative in your life. That's God's initiative in the world. In 1 Peter 2.9 it says, God called you out of darkness. You can't see anything in darkness. You don't know where you're going in darkness. You can't light the way for yourself because you're in darkness. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This expresses the truth of John 10.27 when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? Follow me. Say, how does someone know the Bible is the word of God? Because my sheep know my voice. If you don't know the Bible is the word of God, then you're not one of his sheep. Because his sheep instantly hear the voice of their creator and it resonates in their spirit. And then they go and look at the evidence and the evidence boosts their faith because there's a lot of evidence for the Bible. But they instantly understand this is the voice of God to my soul. And they say, yes, Lord, I'm here, I believe. Don't you ever think that you were converted and came to faith in Christ because you had some special insight about Jesus Christ. Oh, no, you didn't. You were blind and dead and you were in darkness. And the only reason you believe is God turned the light on in your soul. He gets all the credit. First, the call of the shepherd comes. Then the sheep say, I'm coming. I'm coming. I want to follow. I want to follow the shepherd because he knows where he's going and I don't. Saul was called to salvation, and at that very moment, he was also called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Later, he would write in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the opening verse, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. And this is where he was called. He was called to salvation. He was called to be an apostle. He was called to be a witness of the resurrection. Say, how are we called by God? Well, we don't hear an external voice. We hear the voice of God in the Scriptures. This is the Word of God. This is the breath of Almighty God on a page. And when we hear that, and sometimes one verse speaks to one person, another verse speaks to another person, but they hear it. Someone's saved reading the Gospel of John. Someone's saved reading the book of Revelation. Someone's saved reading Hosea. Who knows what it is? And they hear something, and it, and it shows them that they're a sinner and that they need God, and they respond to that, and that's the call of God. I was saved because another guy, also named Tom, he came to me in my dorm room when I was in college and there was a religious debate going on and I remember hardly anything that was being said except for those of us that were defending Christianity didn't have the foggiest idea what we were talking about and he did. So I crossed the room and went over to him and you know, I said something to him that I don't remember what I said and he said other things to me and I don't remember what that was either. But then he said to this, Tom, you're either part of the family of God or you're part of the family of Satan. And boom, it hit me between the eyeballs and I knew right then and there I was an unsaved man and I was under the judgment of God just as Satan was. And I got saved that night because God called me. 
not because I had any insight, not because I was searching for God, not because I had more spiritual sensitivity, not because I studied all of the the philosophers and the religious leaders of the world. Forget all of that. It's the call of God that makes a person saved. The call of God consists both of the invitation that goes out to everybody that can be resisted. A lot of people say no to salvation, but when it is one of God's chosen people, the call of God comes with a little something extra, and God takes his word and pushes that word deep inside the conscience and the mind and soul of a person so that that is an irresistible call, and they respond by saying, yes, Lord, here I come. Many are called, it says, but what? Few are chosen. Jesus said that. In other words, there's an external call that goes out to all people, and many people resist that, but to those that are chosen of God, God takes that very same call, and he pushes it inwardly into someone, and they respond by hearing the voice of their creator. Beloved, if you are one of those, you need to understand that God, before eternity passed, had already determined to save you, and when you got saved, it was because God was conferring his love to you to save you out of the torrents of hell, and he had you and his heart and his mind from way back then, and and he saved your wretched soul. Isn't that a wonderful expression of what he did for you? All of your sins taken away, an eternal inheritance given to you because God rested his love on you because he chose you for salvation. When I doubt God's love, I go back to that. A bleeding, dying Savior on a cross dying for me when I didn't even know I needed anybody to die for me. Romans 8.30, those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Do you know what that means? Declared innocent, saved. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From eternity past to eternity future, nobody is lost in God's plan. In the space and time, he comes and he calls sinners to himself, maybe not as dramatically as Saul's, it could be just quietly sitting there in, 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 at home with your Bible open or, or a grandmother talking to a grandchild and the grandchild responds. It could be in a classroom where you hear the voice of God. It could be driving and you're reflecting on a sermon. You could be listening to Christian radio, but the word of God comes to you and in that moment you're saved. God has called you. And Saul was called. Now, before we go on to the next stage, notice the experience of the bystanders in verse 7. The men who traveled with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Can you imagine these guys? Now, the men traveling with Saul are left unnamed. There had to be a full contingency with him because he was needing to arrest a number and bring them back. There could have been dozens of these men. They would have been strong men, capable men, no-nonsense kind of men. The summary statement says they heard the voice, but they saw no one. In chapter 26, verses 13 and 14, it indicates that the others did see the light. The light fell all around them too. They saw the light. It says they heard the voice and they saw the light. Some think that there's a contradiction here because in chapter 22 and verse 9, it says they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking. They did not hear Jesus' voice, it says in chapter 22. I was in my class, New Testament as literature, as a brand new Christian, and my professor, a retired Presbyterian minister, was teaching the class in a secular campus, teaching the New Testament not as the Word of God but as literature. 
And he was going out of his way to make sure all of the students understood how many errors there were in the Bible. This godless, apostate pastor, thank God he was retired, was trying to convince me, a brand new convert, don't believe your Bible. And I was scratching my head and I ran to the university's library, thought, do they have any commentaries here? And pulled out a pretty liberal and wretched commentary. And I found in that commentary the refutation of his statement. There's no contradiction here. No contradiction at all, just complimentary information. It says they heard the sound of the voice. They did not understand the words. In other words, they couldn't make out the actual words, so they never heard the message. It'd be like you hearing from another room. You know people are talking, but you can't make out what they're saying. Just as they saw the light, but they didn't see the person, that was the point. In fact, Dr. Pohill in his commentary summarizes this this way. They heard a noise, but they did not comprehend the conversation. The appearance of Christ and the specific message were meant for Paul alone. In other words, this is very similar to John chapter 12 and verse 29 when Jesus rode in on on a, a donkey on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem and it says that God spoke to the Lord Jesus Christ, said, I've glorified your name and will glorify it again. And the people heard the sound and they said, it thundered. They didn't understand that was the voice of God. So there's no contradiction. They heard the sound. They didn't understand the message. They saw the light. They didn't see Jesus Christ. It's complimentary information. All right, now we go on to third stage and the last one. And that is Paul's response in faith. Verses 8 and 9. Everybody, to be converted, must must respond to the call of God by faith, by repentance and faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Verse 9. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul was struck with total blindness. Total blindness. Why? For basically the same reason that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was struck with dumbness and not able to talk. Remember that? As a judicial punishment for his unbelief and to confirm the word of the Lord had indeed come to him that day. It was a physical sign to reinforce the verbal message. Later in Acts chapter 13 and verse 11, long after Saul is converted on Paul's first missionary journey, this magician, Elymas, was struck blind by Paul as judgment against him for his unbelief. The same happened in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 11, when the angels struck the homosexual men of Sodom with blindness for their sin as a sign of judgment against them. Much debate has centered for years around what was Paul's thorn in the flesh that he writes about and mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. If it was eye problems that Paul was having then that problem commenced here. Because Jesus blinded Saul, they had to grab him by the hand. He was their leader, remember? And lead him by hand into the city of Damascus. Please note the irony of this scene. The mighty and powerful, aggressive Saul 
with authority to bind people and drag them back to Jerusalem is reduced to a beggar aided by others. He was determined to bring men and women bound to Jerusalem. He can't even find his way into the city. Saul's entry into Damascus was not at all as he had envisioned. The Lord let him go through with the full extent of his plan up to a point. And just when his pursuits had carried him far enough in his foolishness, Christ intervened. And that's what, that's what the Lord does with people. We pray and we pray and we pray for people and they don't respond and they don't respond because God is letting them go ahead with the fullness of their stupidity and the fullness of expressing their unbelief to bring them to the end of their rope, to bring them to where they can see they've been following their own recourses, they've been following their own resources and it hasn't worked for them. And now they're discovering what God wants them to learn, you, you, you need me, you need me, you need Christ, you need a savior, you can't do it yourself. You're not good enough. That's what God does. His timing is always impeccable. And so Saul was there three days without sight. He neither ate nor drank. To not drink water for three days shows an intense kind of fasting. This was a fasting of great mourning for sin. This was a fasting of great sorrow in his own soul. Saul was shocked. Saul was confused. Saul was totally broken. His fasting was a form of repentance. To respond to the call of God, a man must be humbled in soul. He must not elevate himself. He must come to the point where he realizes, I am nothing before God. I have nothing in my hands to bring to God. I have no good works to boast about. Before God, who's perfectly holy, I have nothing. That's where Saul is now. Later, he would describe all of the righteousness with, with which he obeyed the law of God. He said, all of it I count as, as dog do, as dung, as not worth anything, something to, to, to get off the bottom of your shoe. It's stinky. That's, that's all of my religiosity. That's all of my obedience to the law. It amounted to nothing. And by the way, he was a much more righteous person than the vast majority of Americans today. And if he says that his pursuit of the law and the obedience of the law of God really was no better than, than the dog do on the bottom of your shoe, then what does that say about the righteousness of people living today? And so he was mourning his own state. He was rethinking everything in his life. He would refuse to even drink a drop of water. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this. We should be greatly encouraged by the fact that God saved Saul, God turned this great persecutor of the early Christians into the first great missionary. He took the man who had been doing the most to harm the church and turned him into the man who did the most to build it up. If God could do that with Saul, God could do the same thing today. Don't ever think that your sins are so great the grace of God can't handle that. Boy, Saul had a lot to ponder. He had received a new direction for life. He'd received a whole new understanding of how to approach God, how to be saved. He received a new understanding of the law, a new understanding of who the Messiah was and what he did. He even received a new doctrine that he was going to unfold, the, the body of Christ on earth. 
The expositor's commentary writes, Saul began to understand that despite his zeal and his sense of doing God's will, his previous life and his previous activities in Judaism lay under God's rebuke. A voice from heaven had corrected him and there was nothing more to be said. Saul could not escape the fact that Jesus, whose followers he had been persecuting, was alive, exalted, and in some manner to be associated with God the Father. He therefore had to revise his whole estimate of the life, teaching, and death of the Nazarene because God had beyond any question vindicated Jesus. Warren Wiersbe writes, The Hebrew of the Hebrews would become the apostle to the Gentiles. The persecutor would become a preacher. And the legalistic Pharisee would become the great proclaimer of the grace of God. Saul was out to arrest others when the Lord arrested him. He had to lose his religion before he could gain the righteousness of Christ. Dr. John MacArthur points out, from the ashes of Saul's old life would arise the noblest and most useful man of God the church has ever known. Beloved, we do not have to have as a dramatic a conversion as Saul of Tarsus, but we must have a conversion. We must have an old life that is called by God and that responds in faith and humble repentance, turning away from our old life and embracing the new life which follows Jesus Christ with whatever He demands of us. Amen? If you have not responded in faith to Jesus Christ that way, you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. You may be baptized in water, but you are an unconverted person and you have no inheritance with God. You have to humble your soul and receive God this way. You cannot have God at all. There's no negotiating with the demands of God. You surrender your life to Him and He is King. You don't bargain with Him about how you want Him to fit your life. You must make a decision as God calls you, I will follow Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Saul's conversion demonstrates that it is always God who initiates salvation. And it is always man who responds actively by faith. And that's why God calls to you. And I would use these verses here to call to you. Let the word of God speak to you and call to you this morning or this afternoon by now. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and the Lord will have compassion on him and return to our God for God will abundantly pardon him. Joel 2 and verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. Turn back, turn to God. Be like those in Acts eleven twenty one, where it says, A great number that believed turned unto the Lord. Believing means turning unto the Lord. If your life's direction has not changed since you said you believed in Jesus Christ, if the direction of your life has not radically been altered since you said that you were a Christian, Well, then I'm going to read you this by Charles Spurgeon. In a sermon, he preached this. Another proof 
of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of, and his conversion is a fiction. Not only action and language, but spirit and temper must be changed. Beloved, you must be changed from the inside out. If you haven't come to the end of yourself, you are an unconverted person. God bless the Ligonier ministry and R.C. Sproul and all the great theology he left behind. I'd like to read a quote from him as we're closing. To affirm true conversion implies that there is also false conversion. Put simply, there is such a thing as non-saving faith. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, has entered the narrow gate, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. People may know the truth and may have felt grief regarding their sin, but it is a selfish sorrow over what their sin has caused them to suffer, not how it has offended a holy God. The most stark example of a false conversion we have in Scripture is that of Judas Iscariot. In a counterfeit conversion, there is no death to self, no submission to the Lordship of Christ, no taking up a cross, no obedience in following Christ, no fruit of repentance, only empty words, shallow feelings, and barren religious activities. I pray that is not your so-called conversion. Please, evaluate your own hearts. Make sure your conversion is genuine. Father, we pray for the souls of all those who hear, that they would hear your voice and know that you're calling them to yourself for eternity, and that that means they surrender their life in an obedient faith, that they have no works they can do to impress you, but they have to trust completely in the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers through his death and resurrection. We pray for all those that are converted that they will have a deep conviction and understanding that the only reason that they ever responded in faith and repentance is because you first gave them that effectual, irresistible internal call in their soul. And we pray that as we go out to evangelize the lost, we'll be very careful not to count a person, a convert, until they are actually converted. We pray you'll continue to guide us in our proclaiming of your light in a dark world to the glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.